There's a lot we can say about joy, a lot we can sing about joy at Christmas time. We have to confess that we don't always feel joy this time of year. We don't always feel happy. This can be a season of difficulty, of challenges. And it may be that you're here today and don't feel the joy we're talking about, the joy that the angels announced that night when Jesus was born. Good news, glad tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. How is it then that we experience joy in the birth of Jesus when we don't always feel that joy? And maybe even now, this Christmas season, you may be longing for that very joy itself. We have to recognize as we come to today's text that joy that lasts true joy comes only from the bedrock foundation of God's unchanging character. Mary, at even her young age and in these surprising circumstances, had learned that truth. And maybe it was Gabriel's joy that sort of was passed on to her as Gabriel rejoiced that with God, nothing will be impossible. But now, even here, Mary is rejoicing in the midst of unsettling circumstances. She chooses to praise God and this song is filled with reminders of God's character her bedrock in tumultuous circumstances. She rejoiced in God, her Savior. Down to her very soul, she opens her song that way. You see it there in verse 46 of Luke chapter 1. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. She was ready to praise and to magnify God from the depths of her being. And this song will sort of unfold her praise. What exactly is she magnifying the Lord about? What exactly is she making Him large as she sings this song of joy? Specifically, it is about God, her Savior. She says, my Savior. This is very personal. God has done something for her. She uses the word mercy in the song a couple of times. You'll notice it in verse 50 as well as in verse 55, excuse me, 54. That word mercy means uh, God's, God's rescue, God's help in our time of need. He comes to our aid. Mary's rejoicing that God has done that not only for her, but also for her people, for Israel, because the birth of Jesus was the birth of the Messiah. We sang about it in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, this promised one that would be the Messiah of Israel. And so Mary will rejoice not only for herself in this first section, but she'll rejoice for her people. This is the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel. And so it's God's mercy that comes through here. But in light of that messianic fulfillment, there's an Old Testament word, mercy, that it might be good for us to think of. Mary doesn't use that word. The New Testament's written in Greek, and so we don't have the Hebrew word here. But I I have to wonder whether Mary was thinking of this Old Testament word as she uses the word mercy here, because this Greek word is the word often used to translate the Hebrew word chesed, which means steadfast love, mercy, God's covenant faithfulness to His people. And so she rejoices in God fulfilling these messianic promises. I have to think she may have been thinking of God's steadfast love, at least for sure 
His mercy, His kindness, His rescuing His people in their time of need, and specifically rescuing Mary. And so today we think of God's saving love, and with Mary we want to rejoice from our souls in the saving love of God. Friend, I don't know what you're experiencing this Christmas season, but if you want joy in your soul, consider with us today the saving love of God. That no matter what is going on in your circumstances, God's saving love does not change. Mary highlights intentionally or unintentionally, three different aspects of God's love as we work through this song. First, we're going to see that God's saving love is gracious. It's gracious. That word grace means uh, it's undeserved. When God displays His saving love in our lives, it's not based on whether we deserved it. And that's a wonderful truth. It's gracious. He, He favors us when we least deserve it. Isn't that great? It can't be earned, which at first seems like a bad thing, but oh, my friend, it is a good thing. Because if it could be earned, it means that I could also unearn it. I could lose it. And I would have done that many times over. But God's saving love is gracious. Notice how Mary describes it in these first few verses here. She says in verse 47, My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. That word rejoiced is a very active joy. It's often used in connection to singing or shouting joy over something. And so Mary is just excited about God her Savior. God has done something. Mary already knows that the Messiah's name is going to be Jesus, which means one who saves. And so this is about the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, the one who saves. And she's rejoicing that God has brought his salvation to her personally. Verse 48, she's amazed that God has regarded her lowly state. She calls herself a maidservant here. It's the word servant. She used it back in verse 38 when Gabriel first appeared and she just kind of submits to the plan of God and says, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be as the Lord has said, as your word has said. And here again, she uses it. She's lowly in heart here. She's humble. And she's just amazed that God would would regard her. That word regard means to look upon or to consider with compassion. As we talked last week, betrothal often took place in Israel for a young girl between the ages of 13 to 15. We, We don't know how old Mary was, but if it was anything like what was common in that day, she could have been very young. Feeling unworthy of what's happened to her. And so... There's this sweet humility in her response. Lord, you've thought of me in my lowly state. Your maidservant, and you've been kind to me. She's just very aware that this is undeserved in her life. The end of verse 48 says something interesting. She says, For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. That in the New King James, that word henceforth is actually the combination of a few words in the original text. From now on. And it's cool because what it means is that the arrival of God's grace in her life, God's undeserved favor, has made a significant change. From now on. She went from lowly maidservant 
And now she says, from now on, I'll be known as blessed by God. This amazing change brought into her life by the grace of God, the kindness, a sweet gift that she did not deserve and things will forever be different for Mary because of God's grace. Isn't that sweet? As she rejoices, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. Why? Verse 49, for he who is mighty has done a great thing. She's maybe playing off of Gabriel's reminder back in verse 37 that with God, nothing will be impossible. You see, God is mighty. He can do this. And so Mary rejoices that God has done something incredible, a great thing for her. Again, very personal. She's just rejoicing in God's kindness to her. And finally, in verse 49, she praises Him for His holiness. Holy is His name. God is has the right as the Holy One to do as He sees fit on the earth. And God in His holy kindness has blessed Mary with this gift. And she's just humbled and rejoices. What a sweet response. To bear a child was certainly not what she had planned, certainly not before her wedding to Joseph. It was awkward for her relationship with Joseph. It was an embarrassment in her community. It was uncomfortable for her. Yet she humbly looks at the bigger picture of what God is doing by fulfilling His promises. She looks past the temporary discomfort of her own expectations and desires and sees God's wonderful plan. And this helps her to realize that she is indeed blessed by God. She is indeed receiving His kindness and His grace, though she did not deserve it. Friends, the birth of Christ reminds us of the gracious, saving love of God, that it appears in our lives not because we deserve it, but because He delights to favor the undeserving. It's who He is. It's what His saving love is like. And the birth of Christ reminds us of that as Mary rejoices in what God has done. Author Fleming Rutledge writes the following. Sin is a category without meaning, except in reference to God's holiness. A Calvin and Hobbes comic strip illustrates this in an endearing way. Calvin, a little boy, is hurtling down a snowy slope on a sled with his imaginary friend Hobbes, a tiger conducting a discussion about sin. The wildly improbable nature of this scene is part of its charm. Here is the dialogue. Calvin, I'm getting nervous about Christmas. Hobbes, you're worried you haven't been good? Calvin, that's just the question. It's all relative. What's Santa's definition? How good do you have to be to qualify as good? I didn't start any wars. I haven't killed anybody. That's good, right? I haven't committed any felonies. Wouldn't you say that's pretty good? Wouldn't you say I should get lots of presents? Hobbes responds. But maybe good is more than just the absence of bad. Calvin says, see, that's what worries me. (laughs) As we look at the reality of God's holiness and our badness, it's not just a scale of good and bad things. Mary here looks to a holy God 
and sees her own lowly condition and says, oh, praise you for looking upon me, your lowly servant. You have been kind to me when I did not deserve it. This is what salvation is, isn't it? I wonder if you know God's gracious saving love today. I wonder if you have accepted the gift of salvation that cannot be earned, but only accepted by faith, by those who are indeed undeserving. It begins by recognizing that you are undeserving with Calvin, who recognizes that, boy, there's not an absence of bad in his life. He's done bad things, and all of us have. We don't deserve God's saving kindness. But Christmas reminds us that the sending of Jesus was not based on our deserving, but on God's gracious saving love. And so that you and I can trust in Jesus Christ and accept that free gift of salvation based on what Jesus did for us. Do you know God's gracious saving love? Maybe you have accepted that gracious salvation by trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, and yet you still lack joy this Christmas. Sometimes that can happen because we've lost sight of God's grace in salvation. We've forgotten that He favored us because we don't deserve it. Instead of remembering that truth, we begin to become entitled and proud We think we sort of deserve something from God. We've lived so long for the Lord, done so many things for His name. Surely it's time that He, uh, I've earned, right, some things from the Lord in response. But there's nothing like entitlement that will suck the joy right out of our lives. Because it leads to discontentment and ungratefulness for what God has done when we did not deserve it. And so we begin to operate with a little chip on our shoulders. (laughs) Well, I've done this much for God. Where's He? Why doesn't He do what I need or do this for me? Surely I've earned it by now. But the truth is that we are totally depraved. We're sinners through and through. And it was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. You want joy? Then don't forget your condition before your salvation. Remember that you were completely undeserving of God's grace. And He favored you when you had no hope. The fact that God's salvation is gracious gives us joy because it sets us at rest. I don't have to earn God's salvation, nor can my sinful deeds lose God's salvation. It is grace. So we rest in His work and what He's done. It's a restful joy. So this Christmas, as you think about Jesus, remember God's goodness to you, His favor, His grace, an aspect of His saving love and character, a bedrock truth that carries you with joy through whatever circumstances you may face. God has been gracious to you. As Mary continues in her song, she begins to highlight the mercy of God, not only for her, but for anyone who would look to Him for help. The, the scope of her song expands here and You notice it in verse 50. 
She says, He who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is His name, and His mercy is on those who fear Him. That word fear Him has to do with reverence. Those that look to the Lord for help in awe of His strength and His might. Those who submit themselves to Him and live for Him. And in this section, she begins to draw kind of a picture of two people groups. There are those who look to the Lord, who trust Him, who are His people, who fear Him. And then there are those who oppose the Lord, who do not trust Him, who do not look to Him. Those who are the Lord's, those who look to the Lord, experience God's mercy. Mary rejoices that God's mercy is on all who fear Him, all who look to Him for help. And this is true from generation to generation. His mercy is unending. Mary may be uh, pulling from Psalm 103 or another Old Testament text that reminds us that though we are as a fleeting breath and fading away, the mercy of our God endures forever, from generation to generation. It's unchanging. She goes on in verse 51. And you'll notice in the next section here, she uses the past tense. He has done this. And Mary could either be looking back to her own memories of of ways that God had been faithful, maybe times in Israel's history, and that's very possible. But I think all of this song has to do with the arrival of Jesus the Messiah. And there's something common in prophecy. It's called the prophetic past tense. (laughs) It's when you look to the future with such surety that you begin to talk about it as if it's already happened. We get this sense in Romans 8, for instance, when the Apostle Paul talks about our salvation, whom he called, whom he justified, whom he sanctified, whom he glorified. He speaks of it in the past tense, though it is yet future. And I think it's possible that that's what Mary has in mind here. I think she may be looking forward to The messianic kingdom, but speaks of these things as if they're as good as done. Certainly, there are examples of each of these in Israel's history, but none of the things she emphasizes will be universal and complete until that millennial kingdom when Jesus reigns over His people Israel, when all of these will be true forever. Notice what she highlights. First, His strength. He has shown His strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. The proud are the haughty, those who do not fear Him, as in the previous verse. They don't fear the Lord. They trust only in themselves. They're proud in their hearts. And they have their schemes and their plans. But God in His might scatters those who resist Him. He is strong to do that with His arm. Verse 52 says, He puts down the mighty. The word mighty is kind of that word despot. It's ruler. These are rulers who use their power in a wicked way. Ruling from their thrones. And instead, God exalts the lowly, the humble. These are all things in the Old Testament that are spoken of happening in that millennial kingdom. Then in verse 53, you notice, He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty. Following the thread of this section, it's, these are not the righteous rich. I think Mary's thinking of the wicked rich, the rich that have not helped the poor, the rich that have not helped the hungry. The ones who don't fear the Lord. 
And so what she's making clear is that when the the Messiah comes, He will rule with a rod of iron. He will implement justice and righteousness. And so those who are proud and have lifted themselves up will be humbled. And those who are oppressed and weak and poor will be exalted as the Messiah rules in perfect righteousness. And He'll do this with the strength of His arm. All of this is evidence of God's mercy, as Mary points out back in verse 50. Interesting to think about, but both judgment and help are evidences of love and mercy. Remember, it is loving for our God to put down evil. It is loving for our God to do what is right. And so in this text, even the tearing down of the proud and the exaltation of the humble is part of God's loving mercy, His rescue of people in time of need. The rich, in a sense, rescued from themselves and their self-dependence. The poor, who trusted in the Lord, exalted with God's help. So Mary is rejoicing in the mercy of God That through the Messiah, God would offer help and rescue to all who would look to Him, who would fear Him, who would trust in Him. And indeed, through this one that Mary is bearing and getting ready to give birth to, Jesus the Messiah, one day He will come and set up His kingdom, and all these things will be set right. Rejoice! God's saving love is merciful. Sometimes when you get together with family, it's a nice time to play some games. I don't know if you enjoy games or not, but one of those games you might play with your family is Monopoly. I can't say I'd recommend that you play it with your family. (laughs) Monopoly has resulted in many a family feud through the years, I'm convinced, but it can be fun. You're familiar in Monopoly with the get-out-of-jail-free card, right? I want you to know this morning that does not work in real life. Apparently, not everyone knows that. A man in Minnesota recently found out that the get-out-of-jail-free card is not applicable to real life. He was pulled over when an officer saw he wasn't wearing a seatbelt and that the car he was driving was registered to someone who was wanted on a warrant. Turns out the driver himself was also wanted, and he was, as he was being searched, the man pulled out the infamous Monopoly card and offered it to the police officers, hoping they would let him go. The card may have provided a few laughs for law enforcement, but the man still landed himself in jail despite the get-out-of-jail-free card. The article was published in the New York Daily News not too long ago. A get-out-of-jail-free card can't help you in your time of need. In fact, there are many places we might turn. We're not experiencing joy when we want help. There's really only one source of help and rescue and mercy. That is the saving love of God. He's merciful. He's merciful. He delights to rescue us in our time of need. This is another bedrock truth of the character of God. He is pleased to rescue those who need help. And so our great problem is that we're hesitant to admit we need help. 
when that's exactly what our Father wants to hear from us. We need Him. We need Him. He's a rescuing God. Do you feel your need this Christmas? Then I encourage you to turn to your merciful God and rejoice that His saving love is merciful. Maybe you don't feel your need for God this Christmas. What's interesting about verses 51 and through 53 is that as Mary lists these two groups, there are the, those who fear the Lord and those who are proud. There are those who are uh, the rulers and those who are oppressed. There are the rich and there are the weak. The two different groups. What's interesting is that all of them have need for God. It's just that only some of them see it. There's a truth for all people. No matter what our state in this life, there's this underlying truth. We all need God's salvation. But the wonderful corollary truth is that He is a rescuing God. So friend, turn to Him in your time of need. Turn to Him for salvation first and foremost to Look to the Lord Jesus Christ who died for you and rose again. There is salvation in no other name under heaven, only in Jesus. Receive God's mercy today by trusting in Jesus Christ. But then, if you have trusted in Christ, don't begin to turn to other things. Sometimes we begin to think that, oh, well, He he did my salvation. I'll take care of everything else. And in our hearts, we sort of become proud and haughty. We start trusting in our jobs or in our wealth or in our family or in uh, our status in life or, or even in our friends and our church and our circumstances. We never grow out of our need of God. We never grow out of our reliance on His mercy. And even after salvation, God continues to delight in being a rescuing God. So, friend, keep turning to Him. Keep looking to Him in your time of need. No matter what you face, remember God's saving love is merciful. He delights to rescue the needy. In fact, let's just pause for a moment and ask the Lord for His help. Father, we thank You for being a merciful God. We have created so many messes in our lives. We get ourselves into so much trouble. Not just the eternal trouble of our sin, which deserves your just wrath, but even as your children who've trusted in Christ as Savior, we continue to fail and falter. We praise you for being a merciful God. You do not pour out your judgment on us because you see us in Christ And so, Father, even now we cry out to you for help. Help us, Lord. I don't know what people in this room are facing right now. I don't know what those listening online are going through. But we just together confess to you now we need your help. We thank you for being merciful and rescuing us in our time of need. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Learn to pause and run to your rescuing Father. Mary closes her song in the final two verses, actually by kind of looking at Israel. And she looks at the promise of God to Israel. And so we're going to think of this in terms of God's steadfast love, His promised love. It comes to us because He said it will, not because we deserved it. And 
His, his word, his promise will never change. So there's nothing that can undo it. As Gabriel already emphasized to Mary, when God says something, nothing will be impossible. He does it. He just keeps his word. Notice what Mary says in verses 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. This is promise terminology. God will be faithful to his servant Israel. Now just pause to reflect on Israel's history a little bit. You know, think back to the relationship God had with Israel. And, you know, as you, as you remember Israel's history, right, they really just earned God's favor, didn't they? Just over and over, they just proved they were worthy of his kindness. And no, it's the farthest thing from the truth. I mean, the Old Testament is this recounting of the failures of Israel. And God's what? Faithfulness to his word, to his promises, to his kindness to them. Before we get too insulting of historical Israel here, we need to look at our own hearts as well. Have you and I established a pattern of earning God's favor and kindness? No. No, it's failure after failure after failure. So why then does God continue to pour His love upon us? Because He's steadfast. He's promised it, and His Word never fails. Mary rejoices in God's remembrance of His mercy. Why did God keep showing kindness to Israel? Because He remembers His mercy. Again, that's the same word as earlier in the text, which could refer to that said, that steadfast love, that promised love. God remembers. His character never changes. And so, He helps Israel. He helps us. Verse 55, Mary reminds us, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. So God, God's help is in the form of keeping a promise. A promise, verse 55, that was spoken to the fathers and to Abraham. And so we need to think through Israel's history a little bit here. What promise was given to Abraham as well as to the fathers? We refer to it as the Abrahamic covenant. First spoken to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, where God says to Abraham in a point of undeserved kindness in Abraham's life, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make you, your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's the first time that covenant was given to Abraham, a promise forever. It's repeated to Abraham a number of times and later includes such blessings as specific territory of land. And then that promise is repeated to who Mary refers to here, the fathers of Israel. They're actually the sons of Jacob, the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. God repeated these promises to his people. What he said to Abraham, he would do for them as well. God is still going to keep that promise. In some regards, it is unfolding even now today, and I'll explain more about that, but it will be fully realized in the millennial kingdom when even Abraham gets to participate in the fulfillment of these promises and the exact length and width of land that God had promised to Abraham will be given to Abraham and God's people Israel, and they will enjoy the fulfillment of this promise. God keeps His word. But here's what's cool about the Abrahamic covenant. 
God not only blesses Israel in the Abrahamic covenant. You may have noticed there, but there's a phrase at the end of the covenant. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Something will happen through Abraham that will result in blessing to every family on the earth. Sounds a little similar to the announcement of the angels. I bring you good tidings of glad joy, which will be to all people. Isaiah chapter 49 reminds us that God is not only going to fill His promise uh, to Israel, but He's going to do something even greater. Listen to these verses about the Abrahamic covenant here in Isaiah 49, 5 and 6. Now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be His servant, to bring Jacob back to Him, so that Israel is gathered to Him. That's speaking about God's promise to Abraham and the dwelling in the land during the kingdom. But then verse 6, Indeed, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So this one, Jesus, through whom God would fill His promise to Israel, God says, I'm going to do something really cool through this same individual. I'm going to bring salvation to all people. That anyone who trusts in Christ can be saved. A light to the Gentiles. Apostle Paul wrote about this in Galatians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. He says, And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Did you hear that? God preached the gospel to Abraham when he said, In you all nations will be blessed. The gospel is the good news that anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and rose again, receives forgiveness of sins and a right relationship with God, and everlasting life. (laughs) Right there in the Abrahamic covenant. Have you known the blessing of God through the Abrahamic covenant by trusting in the one seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, through whom all people are blessed? Do you believe in Him today? God's saving love is promised As it was to Israel, as it was to Abraham, so too to us, that anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ will experience the salvation of God. God mentions you in the Abrahamic covenant, and His Word never changes. It's steadfast. The arrival of the Messiah meant the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel. He had come. The plan of God was unfolding. God had kept His Word. And His Word is sure for you today as well. I wonder, are you resting in the steadfast love of God, the promised love of God that can never be undone, that can never fail, the God who uses His mighty strength always to accomplish His Word that cannot be stopped? Rejoice. God's saving love is steadfast. This bedrock of His character that He keeps His promises is so helpful to us to cast off our doubts, to settle our worry and our fear. You can't stop the promise of God. 
And so we rejoice in the saving love of our God, that His grace toward us, undeserved kindness, that His mercy, that He delights to rescue us, and His steadfastness, that His promised salvation is sure, and we take Him at His word. These are the bedrocks of joy in the believer's life. And so as you celebrate Christmas this season, rejoice in a God who never changes, who in the birth of Christ has put on display what His saving love is like. So with Mary, you can say, My soul rejoices in God my Savior. Father, we thank You so much for the song of Mary, her sweet humility and trust in you in light of what the Lord Jesus had come to do. As we face our own challenges and difficulties and struggles, oh, develop in us the humility that just rejoices in the fulfillment of your promise. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the evidence of your promises kept the evidence of your saving love, your grace, and your mercy in our lives. May we turn to you and lean on you and rejoice in you this Christmas season. Fill our lives with joy in the unchanging characters you have portrayed to us here in Luke chapter 1. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.